every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Grant Johnson, CMO of Emburse. Grant is a four-time tech CMO with over 20 years of success in scaling marketing operations and building profitable global businesses. He was brought in last year to lead the group of six travel and expense management software vendors that came together as Emburse to challenge the industry incumbent. On this episode, Grant discusses his holistic view of marketing, encompassing four key levers, and how they work together in an integrated marketing framework, why the best strategies are customer-focused, how to be adaptable in applying your playbook, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Grant Johnson, CMO of Emburse, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we have a special guest. Grant, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on. Excited to dive deep into everything going on at Emburse and uh, and all your demand gen secrets. So first, what was your first job in demand gen? Well, my first adventure, I would call it, in demand gen was at the Norton division of Symantec. The company are separate now, but at the time, Symantec had acquired Norton, and I had global responsibility for the Norton brand. That included business to consumer. Um, I don't know how many listeners are old enough to remember Norton Utilities, <laughs> Norton for Windows, and Norton Desktop, and then also business to business, Norton Enterprise and Norton Networks. And so it was really fun to be able to work on creating demand for everything from individuals to large enterprises. And I also got introduced to what I called, you know, big league advertising. We had a $10 million budget to create demand with through advertising specifically. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And so flash forward to today, tell me a little bit about your role at Imburse. Well, I run global marketing, I report to our CEO, part of the executive staff, and my primary mission is to help fuel growth for the company. We've been growing in double digits for a number of years. We've grown both organically and through acquisition, and we plan to continue here in 2021. And I really see my role as the orchestrator. I have put a lot of my focus in both recruiting talent. I've been on board a little bit over a year now and enabling them to build their teams so we can deliver on our primary objectives to fuel growth. We'll get obviously deep into uh, into that here in a little bit. But for our listeners who don't know, what is Inverse? 
Imburse is a company that automates expenses, invoices, and accounts payable, as well as helps manage spend for businesses. We work exclusively for B2B uh, on a global basis. And what's unique about Inburse is that through our growth trajectory, we've built what we call tailored solutions. We don't have a one-size-fits-all and either take it as we offer it or you, you can pass on it. We have solutions that are tailored for small business, medium business, enterprises, companies based in Europe, nonprofits. So what is nice about that is we don't start with trying to fit a square peg to a round hole. We say, well, what's your problem? And then we, you know, what we call through the discovery process or some call solution selling, we try to find the best fit. And through the course of our conversation with potential and ultimately actual customers, we may decide that the initial idea was not the best fit. And so there's no no harm, no foul. Let's find what's going to make a customer successful. And that's the solution that we will ultimately together uh, choose. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. What would you say is your demand gen strategy? Well, I tend to look at marketing as just my DNA very holistically, and I really don't think I can talk about demand gen without really talking about what I consider the four primary levers all working together to help demand gen work optimally. For me, the levers are brand, communications, product marketing, and and demand gen. And they really should be ideally part of an integrated marketing framework. I could easily have each of my have, you know, leaders in those four areas produce their plans and execute away. And they may consider it that they've achieved their objectives, but as a whole, the company would not perform as well. So, and it's also not to say that other things aren't important. You know, web is critical operations, especially with the ever burgeoning tech stack is important, but those are kind of the levers that really drive a company's positioning, uh, opportunity, and ultimately its success. So for demand gen, for me, the best practices start our strategies with a customer focus, We feel that as a company, we're very customer-centric, but as a head of marketing, to me, that's where I've had the most success. I feel that, and and we've done what I consider the, the foundational work, is if we understand the pain points, the buyer personas, and we align our content and our communications to the buyer's journey, we're more likely to engage successfully, create opportunities, and help nurture and progress those opportunities and win that business. Yeah, you know, you've been a CMO a few times. Was there something that you came into into this role specifically and saw, you know, you know you have your four horses there of your your holistic strategy. Was there something that when you came in, you said, okay, am I going to think about this company demand a little bit different? Or is it, or are you kind of, you know, dipping into that playbook that you've been honing throughout your career? 
You know, that's really f- an interesting question, and it's it's somewhat anecdotally, uh, at least to me, you know, it was interesting. As part of the process of joining the company, at the time, some of my direct reports were part of the interview process. They were, you know, they weren't sort of as critical as the CEO or the chairman. But, you know, one of them said when I got to know her, is said, I was worried that you were just going to apply your playbook because I have templates and tools and playbooks, you know, I haven't been a CMO for a decade plus. But I always feel like, you know, gosh, who would have predicted COVID and how it's had an impact on everything we do and in-person events and virtual work and so forth is that, you know, those are just frameworks, right? And they're lessons learned, but they're not the actual roadmap to how you're going to get from destination A to destination A to destination B. So while I did bring my learning and you know experience, I really looked at it with a very open mind. And, and quite frankly, I one of my first priorities back in late 2019, I did not have a, a senior strong enough leader in either demand generation or in what I consider strategic communications, which includes analyst relations, public relations, social media. So that was really my first priority because, you know, you learn as a CMO or any leader is of any company is if you're doing all the work, you can only go so far as if you're enabling a you know, leadership team. So getting those two folks on board within the first 90 days was key. So as you were looking at, you know, the company and the suite of products that you have, you know, the organization, as you said, that solution selling approach, a little different from, you know, the way other companies might go to market slightly, kind of working from the problem out versus kind of the more maybe um, just a different kind of product approach, which is like, hey, we made the greatest thing ever and, and, you'll, and you're going to fit into it with a shoehorn no matter what um, sort of a thing. Not that there's anything wrong with, with that way. But as you kind of mentioned, you all have a bit of a different approach, working the solution backward and fitting them into a product that makes sense. Does that change the way you think about demand? Because, you know, getting someone on the phone to be able to articulate those problems is is really the art of the sales and marketing process there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you're right. There are certain, you know, industries, certain uh, products, uh, offerings where, you know, people either adopt, you know, web hosting platform, you know, or video communication platform, they don't, right? But in our case, we have a, a high level of complexity because of the tailored solutions. And so I'm not creating, my team is not creating holistic demand, we're creating specific demand. So we have a, a buyer journey for a business owner. It's going to be a lot different than the buyer journey for the controller or the CFO of a mid-sized business or the accounts payable supervisor at an enterprise. And so we really have to understand the a day in their life, you know, what their watering holes are, what they're going to respond to. And, you know, one of the things that's I've learned over the past decade, I've managed business development, often known as BDR or sales development, SDR organization is they're really having these early stage conversations when, you know, marketing lead or a contact, you're trying to find out, you know, do they have a need? Do they have budget? Do they have a time frame? Are they a decision maker? And to your point, is, is the value proposition, is it resonating? Is the messaging resonating? Or is it really not right for them? And so by taking that very customer-centric persona 
specific approach, we found that our demand gen tactics have worked better. And by the way, they don't all work well. I mean, some work for some segments, some work for some personas. And it's, uh, you know, it's my largest team. It's probably 25% of my organization is in some relate, something related to demand gen. And we're going to get into those plays here in a little bit. Um, so talk to me about personas. You mentioned that you have, you know, very different personas and obviously you approach those very differently. What are, what are some of the personas that you're selling into? Well, again, for small business, it would be a, uh, it could be the owner. It could be the office manager. It could be an administrator for medium business. It starts to get more what I would call finance specific functions. So that could be uh, accounts payable, could be a controller, could be potentially a you know CFO, where it's not quite as large a business. But we also, when you think about expense management, you can get procurement involved. Uh, you could have compliance involved, certainly IT involved, if there's any integration. HR could be involved. We have a, a purchase card, if you may be familiar with the P card. And so we can allow with pre-approved spending limits, companies to issue virtual or physical cards and allow uh, folks to spend it on uh, you know, work at home reimbursement or, uh, you know, setting up the second monitor or whatever it might be, or they could uh, use it for travel related or even like the Amazon purchase that you might need that's, you know, business uh, related. Uh, so there's really a wide variety of decision makers. And we've sort of prioritized in mapping it out uh, who's going to have the most impact on the purchase. There are those that are like approvers or blockers. And so you want to have some level of content communications, but most of our effort is focused on the person that makes the ultimate decision or the, the buying center that makes the ultimate decision. So in our, in our, you know, discovery before this episode, I, I didn't realize that Inverse had so many kind of awards that you've been winning. We were checking out G2 crowd, uh, you know, winning some of the, uh, you know, winter 2020 stuff there. What's the scope that you're at as a as a company? Um, how many folks are using the product and and customers and stuff like that? Yeah, we we have over fourteen thousand customers. Uh, most are in North America, but you know also in different geographies in Europe and Asia Pacific. Because we have a wide range of solutions for different customer sizes segments, if you will. Uh, we're organized by segments within uh, within Imburse that uh, we can offer certain products more tailored to small, uh, medium, or large. And the focus on you know customer success, customers first, uh, customer enablement that has really been a harbinger of our success. I think a lot of the companies that originally came together as Imburse. They were bootstrapped. And, you know, if you've been part of a company that, you know, starts up and then, you know, becomes nimble and starts to grow, you realize that you're really growing based on the success of the customers that you serve. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, some of these large companies get complacent and innovation happens from other companies. We haven't lost sight of that. And so we've kept to the roots that we have to keep winning customers every day. We have to earn the right to sell additional solutions or services, if you will. And I think that's what's led to the reward the awards. Uh, most of these awards are really customer votes. They're kind of crowdsourced, if you will. 
And so we can't control, we can't even influence them. We just have to have a you know, healthy customer, happy customer. And that's really the end product of what you do every day. And so when you have a portfolio of brands like that, that as you mentioned, you know, you 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 manage in, in kind of different ways with different websites. I'd imagine that that can be a huge challenge to kind of have, like you said, you don't ha- kind of have like a, a holistic brand approach because you have these different products, but like managing that many websites and things, it seems like that's pretty challenging. Uh, that was one of the fundamental challenges coming into the company that uh, I had created brands from scratch. I had built brands that had you know, unicorn billion dollar valuations. But I was really interested in taking on a challenge where we had to create a whole greater than some of its parts. So Imburse is comprised of brands like Certify, Chrome River, Nexania, Abacus, uh, Captio, and that's on a global basis. And so what I had to do, the team had to do is make sure each of the websites worked independently as well as would map into imburst.com. And so that's really a journey that we continue to evolve. You'll see a new website out here probably in early uh, February of 2021, where we just deepen the integration between the individual product offerings like, you know, a Certify or a Tally and Imburst. And so you can move seamlessly as a, a prospect and find your best fit. We have a little product configurator where you just answer a couple questions that says, hey, you might consider here or here. And then as I said earlier, uh, the, the ultimate fit has to be determined after a conversation. We don't try to force fit anything. But yeah, it is very challenging to make sure each of the websites performs and that our overall traffic and, and the, what I call the web vitality continues to increase over time. So you mentioned, you know, this kind of like holistic brand versus like product brands as kind of a a potential point that is a a very obvious like need for any CMO, like, you know, the strength of your products versus, you know, kind of the, the whole company. But you also have like a company mission and a purpose as well. So, you know, like which you have to market. So, you know, how, how do you think about that type of thing? Uh, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily falling under demand. Like you said, it's, it's in kind of more of the brand category, but it's obviously, you know, equally important. Yeah. There's a fairly straightforward way that I think about it. My team thinks about it. If, uh, my VP of growth marketing, that's responsible for the demand generation, also responsible for operations, um, that there's a very concrete marketing contribution of both unique number of opportunities and the pipeline value for a, for, we're a SaaS company, so our uh, annual recurring revenue, the ARR, if you will. But almost everything else I do is really centered around Imburse and our value proposition to humanize work to automate uh, painful, manual, time-consuming tasks and give people time back, better work-life balance, if you will, and so that they don't have to think about an expense report. It just happens. And so uh, our social media, our public relations, our analyst relations, a lot of the just general communications are around Imburst. And it's sort of an Imburst-first philosophy, but I 
I bifurcated the team bifurcates knowing that we still have to create demand for each contributing product line. And so that's why we set very concrete targets and the rest of the emphasis all around building and burst. We have aspirations like a lot of companies to continue on a growth path where we're going to have some level of either IPO or liquidity event. And so if I were to try to build all things equally, the whole will be less of the sum of its parts. And so I have this predisposition that, well, we're going to make our demand gen targets, which we have. We've got to also be mindful about building up in bursts. Let's get to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Playbook is where you can open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? Well, you might be prescient because you mentioned one of them when you mentioned G2. The review sites, you know, uh, we both have uh, promotions there, CapTerra in addition to G2, software advice in particular. There's a number of other ones I've discovered in the last year that it's like I wasn't as aware of, but those are the the big three. The other thing is paid search. The funny thing about paid search, uh, um, I've been in tech marketing most of my career, and I was back in the early dot-com days back when Google was not the behemoth it was. And I was spending front bridge, I don't know, 30, 40,000 a month. And nobody knew if it would work, but it worked. You know, we grew fast. Microsoft bought the company. It was a success, but we're spending a lot in paid search and it's been massively successful for us. And then paid social. I'm not saying I'm surprised because I put a toe in the water years ago at Kofax and paid social, but it's actually driven a lot of traffic that is converting on the various, you know, websites. So those are the top three. All three of those, obviously, you know, popular ones that we hear. Um, reviews is so funny because, like you said, it's your product and your customer service combined to fuel those review sites or, uh, and, you know, f- seemingly out of your control as a, as a marketer. Um, but then you see, you know, like uh, we had the the former CMO of G2 on Ryan Benici a bunch of episodes ago. Um, and you, you just see how the companies that are able to engage with their customers on those sites, like vastly outperform their peers. And it's like, if you, if you're, if you're, if your buyers, you know, if people are considering software and if your customers and buyers are in, are in those watering holes, like you said, you have to spend money there or you have to be there and you have to have a presence. Uh, and it seems like it's, as you mentioned, it truly is uncuttable. Well, absolutely. And there's another thing I discovered is like when you're trying to master, I mean, I was, I can't say I was born digital. My kids were born digital, but I, I probably started a digital journey, you know, well over a decade ago. And, you know, I don't want to compete with those review sites and SEO or in paid search. So I just want to do really well. When somebody goes there, they find us. <laughs> As you're leveraging paid search and you have like a portfolio of brands, so you're running, I'd, I'd presume you're running, uh, you know, paid ads for the, for the different products and personas. Is your, is your first play uh, once, they, once they click over to do some type of assessment like you were talking about, or is it like more product focused? Because I'm curious because 
because you kind of have a solution selling approach to it. If it's more about like once they get there to get them to, to like share more information or is it more just like try to convert right away? Really good question. The, uh, and it does depend a little bit on the side for the small business. We're trying to arrange a demo uh, early on and we want to make it as frictionless as possible. And, and they're probably going to want a demo before they start a trial, but certainly that would be the next step. But as we move up market to the midsize and the enterprises, we're really trying to further the education and help the prospective buyer, you know, think about why we're different, how we're different, what would be different about, you know, engaging with us. And so we're not trying to get, you know, a the landing page like, you know, click here to get a demo or start your trial. And so it, it's really dependent upon that, you know, persona, that customer segment. And we, we, we have a range. But I would say that all the websites that we operate share my basic philosophy that I, I think I learned a long time ago is get the visitor to take the next step. You can quickly go to any website and, you know, look at the page and it could be eloquently laid out. You know, it could have a nice message, a nice visual, you know, maybe a particular comparison that shows why the company is a better choice, company A versus company B or, you know, upstart or what we call contender challenger brand like Inverse versus the incumbent leader. And then it doesn't tell you what to do next. And you always want to say, okay, what's next? I scroll to the bottom of the page. I click here. And it's amazing that little simple thing on a website that can help your demand gen. I mean, fill out a form, share some information, say you want to be contacted, download something else, but, um, you know, take the next step, sign up for the newsletter, whatever that might be. And that's just kind of simple, you know, website practices that I, my team deploys across the various sites. What about one channel or tactic that you see is is maybe a very cuttable one or something that wasn't working or or that you think might fade away in in 2021 well some of the uh companies that uh, lost their budget i do feel bad for a, a lot of the organizations that relied on in-person events but i could probably go back and it coincides with you know maybe 2010 i was i think about pegasystems Kofax and, and Silence, uh, three stops in the last 12 years prior to, to Inverse. A, every company, I looked at the ROI. My, my philosophy is the ROI of everything. My team adopts that. And if you can't project what a return is, I'm not spending that dollar, right? And so I looked at these companies. This is pre-COVID. And so like in COVID, it was pretty obvious. But pre-COVID, I cut between a half million and a million out of events because they were harder to measure. They didn't prove to deliver the ROI. And digital, if it works, you know, you just increase it. If it doesn't, you turn it off. So, you know, when COVID hit, I put the brakes on in-person events. It took me about five seconds to redeploy those dollars where I could into digital channels. You know, now that I've obviously all, all this stuff has shifted, do you see, you know, the digital as something that you're going to continue to triple down on? Or are you going to try to look at once once, once we can do in-person things again in the future? Is that something you want to look at? No, I definitely will consider in person. I, I'm a part of a couple of different CMO peer groups and I know, and I've had success. Some of them had a lot of success with, you know, very small, more, uh, uh, you know, intimate events, um, things that, 
you know, certain events where enough of your buyers go to. I have this other metric I use called composition and coverage for events. And so if we think about the persona, somebody says, well, come to my in-person event. Let's say, you know, second half this year, we can start doing that again. How many of my target do you have? They say, well, we got 5,000 mid-sized businesses. Great. What are the titles? And so that's the composition. So if you don't have the titles of my known buyers based on our experience, then it's going to be a lot harder. The other thing I do for the events is, you know, what's our cost per lead? I mean, I have some businesses and some segments where our cost per lead is, you know, it's dollars. And I have some that are in the hundreds of dollars. And if I can't map out the number of actual leads that fit our lead criteria and we'll, we'll go through the waterfall into a, a dollar on the way at, uh, you know, at the end, a multiple of the dollar I invested, that's going to be a tough sell. So it's a very rigorous financial equation to determine the event. I don't like to go to feel-good events. Um, I just don't see the, the ROI. It doesn't mean we can't send people. Uh, I once went to an event and just, you know, bought a meeting room and put up a banner that said, you know, we're making so much noise, they sent us to our own room. And so all the people that went to that event at the Javits Center, you know, we got to capture a few of them, but we saved 100,000. So, you know, definitely we're going to go to in-person events. We're going to be very selective. I wonder, you know, as, as T&E budgets, you know, have completely shifted what, what that, what that shift is, uh, or that shift back is going to be with regards to SMB, right? Because like you said, you know, the small group events, you know, the handful of CIOs or the handful of whatever, VP or whatever, those sort of things, you need a depth of engagement. Uh, you need a level of sophistication with the conversation. For SMB, not to say as an SMB myself, not to say we're not as sophisticated, but you just don't have as much time, right? And your decision-making is, you know, you need to to make a decision and, and trust that the product's going to work and move on and trust that it's going to save you money and time, not the other way around. And I do wonder what SMB looks like going forward because it seems pretty confusing. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone's going to be more selective about events that they attend in person as we, you know, come out of this pandemic do you have a favorite campaign that you've run over the years? <laughs> Boy, that'd be a hard one to pick. But I'll just think about over this past year. I will tell you, I had not historically, and if people tell you otherwise, they're probably lying, had a lot of success with competitive campaigns. You know, I've always, it's always like a knee-jerk reaction. You know, competitor X did something stupid. Let's take advantage of it. Or competitor Y is like, you know, behemoth and they're, they're slow moving. But this year, and I think somewhat opportunistically, we capitalized on what we do differently and demonstrated that we had the mindset, the agility to adapt to a very changing, you know, virtual engagement, you know, path. And we were quite successful. I can't share the actual numbers, but it was well over 100. And, you know, I, I could count on one hand in the past competitive takeout campaigns that all they did was, you know, add grief to the team because, you know, it was a lot of effort, a little return. You know, we had a moderate effort and, and a really good return. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with how the competitive campaigns performed this past 12 months. Let's get into the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was 
a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is our segment where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you ever had a memorable dust-up in your career? Oh, I've had a few. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I remember a CEO once, you know, saying to me that, uh, you know, it's good to have, you know, some uh, healthy tension between sales and marketing. But while that's true, it's not good to have unhealthy tension. And and when I arrived at one of my CMO, I, I don't want to mention the company name, but I think you can probably follow and, and others can relate to this. The head of sales was really frustrated with the, both the lead volume and, and, and the quality. And, you know, wasn't necessarily blaming my predecessor, but, you know, I, my office was next to his, which I thought was great. It's, we really had a lot of great conversations that weren't, you know, planned on a calendar, right? And, you know, there was a bit of finger porting. I obviously, as a new CMO, I have to get the facts. And, you know, my team said, oh, the sales, they can't follow up on a lead. They wouldn't know a buyer if it ran them over. So, but really, part of that solution was, and I had run this team before, but my predecessor wasn't run the BDRs that we moved, that we agreed with the CRO to move the BDR organization. So I could understand, you know, why were we falling short? Because we were spending, I think, you know, millions, we were spending enough money. And what was it, you know, was it the targeting? We didn't have the right personas. We didn't have the right message. Was our value proposition dull? Uh, was something breaking down in the handoffs and the progression of, you know, leads to opportunities. And so, you know, digging into that and figuring out what the causality was, I was able to overcome the shortfall. But part of it, and I think this is an important lesson, was really a behavioral change. And I can't say I fault my, at the time, head of the demand gen, but volume was her metric. Look look at all the leads were produced. And I said, that can't be the metric. The metric is actually closed one. And she really struggled to understand that says, well, you know, we handed the leads over. They met the, you know, auto MQL or, you know, sales accepted criteria. I said, yeah, but if sales doesn't make the quarter, there's really nothing to celebrate. And then that was a mind shift. And, you know, fortunately, my head of demand gen totally gets that. And so I did inherit that here. I inherited a you know pretty healthy demand gen engine. We've just tried to fuel it more, but yeah, that was a tough one. Uh, it was it was a big dust up. There was you know a, a lot of consternation. Ultimately, it, it, we became a a more united team between sell, sales and marketing. We either we go to battle together, we either win or fall short together. Are there any big trends that uh, that you're particularly excited about coming up or going forward? Yeah, I think and. I've been at a company that, you know, has this you know, capability. Um, I think that the uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, of course, there's a lot of promise going on and there's maybe not a lot of reality. It'd be nice to you know, sit back and let the machine do all the work um, and just have continuous improvement. I think it takes human beings to have continuous improvement. But I think that I expect that AI and ML are going to continue to help inform better decision-making and faster decision-making. I think speed is a weapon. And, you know, I like to say, go fast, fail fast, learn always. But I also think that business intelligence, you know, more visual mapping, a lot of times if you can see something, a pattern will emerge. If you just try to like, you know, read a bunch of data, 
be able to visualize, you know, trends and the various directions. I think there's some, uh, you know, visualization improvements that we'll see in the BI world as well. How about a uh, campaign that was your biggest learning experience? Well, I would tell you that the number one, maybe it's not the number one buzzer, you'd have to tell me, but it seems like of the, you know, 40,000 marketing technology companies out there that wouldn't fit in my home office map, they're all ABM. They're all promising ABM. And, you know, ABM is actually pretty hard. And I had set up, uh, you know, I had a, a leader on ABM, sales was excited, you know, we had reasonable goals, you know, we were in it together and, you know, it just failed miserably. <laughs> and, you know, we learned that there were a lot of things that in our basic assumptions just didn't hold true. You had to have, you know, a formative assumption. And over time we, you know, figured out, but one of the things that we found that really was a better way was to pilot it. We tried to just you know, launch it wholesale, let's say in North America. So we took like a West Coast uh, team and, you know, instead of launching it with, you know, 40 salespeople, we launched it with four. So having fewer uncontrollable variables really helped uh, us kind of get our footing again in ABM. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. So was that in reference to, was it more of an enterprise play or was it it something different? Yeah, it was an enterprise play. It's a really good point. I think that, you know, bid market and, you know, so the mo- some of the more transactional, the relationship, you know, enterprises just tend to make more people in the decision process are involved buying centers and they tend to take more time. They have more people that can say no. Smaller companies like our small business, the, the CEO goes to our site, likes the demo, talks to somebody, makes the decision, starts the trial, converts in 14 days. And we and we didn't have to talk to more than one person. You know, enterprise, six months, a year later. Yeah, so we tried it with enterprise, and that's a really good observation. It was a lot harder than we expected. Yeah, I think there's just some fat, and, and the dynamic of the of the sales team and the and the structure of the sales team. You know, you mentioned having BDRs under you at certain stops and and not at others. And you know, we talk to marketers all the time that are you know trying to. I mean, I, I think ABM. I think you're right, and. I think it's also, you know, you hear a lot of people that are like, you know, ABM is BS because that's just marketing, right? Like that's just how it's supposed to be done. But um, but then you have a potential, you know, sales team that, you know, sees things in a completely different way, right? And and it's more about like the dance and, and the marriage than maybe anything else. Because if you have, you know, a whole marketing team and, and, and a sales team that are not quite on the same page, it still might get broken. Absolutely. Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to someone on your website if you're using qualified.com, conversational marketing is here. Qualified prospects are on your website right now. Talk to them quickly with qualified.com. Quick and easy like these questions. You can go to qualified.com to learn more. Grant, are you ready? I am. Number one, what is the one thing that you're going to do after all of the shelter in place and everything is, is lifted? What's your, your number one either thing you're going to do or vacation spot or something like that? It seems like it's been so long, but someday we'll, uh, this will all be behind us. Uh, my wife and I are going to leave the kids at home and head to Maui. <laughs> <laughs> is there a hobby that you've picked up uh, over the past year? 
You know, I think it's more of a hobby that I've enhanced. I, I purchased a tennis ball machine. I, I, I'm fortunate. I live in a neighborhood that has, you know, four courts, two minutes from my house. And so, you know, since we're stuck in zoom meetings, you know, virtually online all day long. I mean, I might find like today between 1230 and 1.30, you know, I just drive to the courts, flip on the ball machine, bash a bunch of balls, and I'm totally ready for the afternoon. So it was a, a bit of an indulgence to buy a ball machine, but it, it, I still play competitive tennis on the weekend. So it both helps me get uh, through the week and uh, keep my edge for the weekend. What piece of advice would you give to a first-time CMO about their demand gen strategy? I can't share my magic formulas. Uh, really, uh, I think the most important thing is to not only set the strategy, but really stay close to the action. You know, certainly you don't want to meddle too much. I, our head of demand, Jen, has a, a regular huddle for the team. And I try to join those maybe three weeks. I'm not going to make it every week. And I really join so I can keep a pulse on, you know, our pace, our innovation, our progress, our, you know, setbacks and our successes and, you know, make occasional suggestions, but, you know, not try to question what we're doing and why. And I feel that, you know, both having the right strategy, but also, you know, I like getting my hands dirty, rolling up my sleeves. I think I, you know, as I've, I have, I've had teams get larger and larger uh, you know, you can't do that for everything by any means, but in demand gen, it's still one of my favorite things to be involved in. And so I think, you know, keeping close to the action in learning all the time is, is key. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today, Grant. Any, uh, any final thoughts, anything to plug? Obviously everybody should check out com to learn more. If you don't have, uh, expense management software, you know, check out certified tons of, tons of good stuff on imburst.com. Uh, if you're, uh, if you're looking for that. Well, I would just give one more uh, lesson learned, you know, from the trenches, especially relating to maybe some first-time CMOs among your listeners, is develop a personal relationship with the, the you know CEO, you know, whoever you're reporting to. I, you know, I think that the honeymoon's going to end. <laughs> I've joked with some of my peers, like, "Gosh, I had a two and a half year honeymoon at that company," you know. And maybe it's only going to be six months, right? But if you have that personal relationship, which I have with our CEO, and you know, we talk about our kids, our families, our you know, fun extracurricular activities, and you're going to encounter you know something that didn't go well, and boy, isn't it good if you have a, a more personal relationship and it's not more sort of hands off? I think it'll help you manage through that. And I wish you luck. <laughs> yeah, great advice. Grant, thanks again. This has been awesome. Really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and take care. All right. Thanks, Ian. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.